bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Today, we're going to get into one of the hottest topics in college sports today, and we'll be talking with someone who is knee-deep into it every day, and you'll get to meet our guest next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. In my opening, I stated that we'd be discussing one of the hottest topics of today in sports, and I wanted to introduce you to a young man who, as I stated, is knee-deep in it every day, (laughs) and his name is Jeremiah Carter. How you doing, Jeremiah? I'm doing great, JB. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, first of all, I, 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 
you know, I, I do appreciate the uh, the young man comment. I don't know if I get to take advantage of that <laughs> moniker anymore, but right. uh, you know, I'm not as young as I once was. Right? <laughs> well, you got to remember, I knew you when you were 18. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I was uh, whatever age, and I'm now in my 60s. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, just just to kind of fill the audience in your background, where did you grow up? So uh, I grew up um, grew up uh, actually out on the East Coast. So um, grew up uh, born and born and mostly raised in Pennsylvania. Um, I moved to moved to Minnesota in high school. Uh, went to went to St. Paul Central High School uh, across the across the river here, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, came, came to the University of Minnesota, uh, actually when I was 17, young, young buck as a freshman. And, uh, you know, with, with the exception of a couple of, a couple of brief periods, I more or less haven't, uh, haven't left since then. No, you were, um, you were an offensive lineman at the U and you Mm -hmm. were one of the guys who blocked for two very damn good running backs. Yeah. In the history of the University of Minnesota, uh, Lawrence Maroney and Marion Barber the uh, the third, and um, so you were around doing some good times of Gopher football. You have any yeah. thoughts of those days? Yeah, you know it was it was a, it was a tremendous experience for me. You know, I, I actually I came as a um, came as a walk on um, to to the university. I was a little little uh, little small for an offensive lineman and. And, um, you know, got an opportunity to come play for, for Glenn Mason, uh, his staff. And I don't, you know, I don't know that there's another, uh, offensive line, certainly not in the big 10, but there's probably not another offensive line in the country where at my size I could have played. (laughs) Um, but you know, just, you know, based on our scheme and and kind of, uh, you know, valuing, uh, athleticism over over just uh kind of that road grader size um you know i was able to you know kind of work my way in and 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 have a you know have a, have a good five years here um you know we we accomplished uh, uh we accomplished a lot of things uh you know really proud to be here when uh you know i was on the team in in 1999 when we uh not only when we beat you know number two undefeated Penn State at Penn State but um, you know also um, what a lot of people forget is is that that qualified us for our first bowl game um, in um, really in I think it was 13 years um, was the the last bowl game we had gone to and um, to to be around the program when there was that much excitement after such a long such a long drought um, is you know a really uh, you know, really, really powerful uh, experience, meaningful experience for me. And, you know, you, you wrapped up your playing years, and I thought for sure, and you even started this way, you were on track mm-hmm. to become the next of Mitch Browning or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Gordy yeah. Shaw. and Yeah, yeah. offensive line coach, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I... I uh, I got done playing and I didn't, you know, my, uh, as I described, I wasn't really, a, um, you know, I, I wasn't, e- I wasn't even a, a prototype uh, division one offensive lineman, let alone a prototype NFL offensive lineman. So I kind of knew, you know, while I, you know, while I'd been able to, 
you know, start for two years and, and, you know, lucky enough to be named to the all Big ten my senior year, you know, I kind of knew that was the end of the road for me from a playing perspective, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready to be done with football. So um, I came back and, um, you know, as a, a graduate assistant and, and, um, and also worked as quality control staff member with the, with the offense um, for, um, I was back for a total of uh, three or four, four years, I think, where I was doing that. And then, um, uh, and then the staff that I was on ran into Mike Leach and the air raid offense at, mm-hmm. at Texas, at Texas uh, Tech and uh, uh, in a bowl game. And, and, you know, we ended up not being, uh, not being retained, uh, as, as they say. And I, I just, I, at that point, I knew that I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the coaching side of it. I enjoyed the on the field part. Um, but at the college level, the on the field part is about, you know, 5% of what you do. And you really got to love with as hard as the work is, you really got to love the other 95%. And I didn't, I didn't love it enough to want to make it, you know, my, the rest of my, my life. So, um, so started, started at that point looking around for, for something different to do. Well, let me back up here a second and and Mm -hmm. ask you a question that I don't even know the answer to (laughs) (laughs) and I should, but I don't. What is a quality control coach? (laughs) (laughs) Make, making sure everything's quality, man. That's uh, no, (laughs) Um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a fancy way of saying, uh, you know, you, uh, I was, you know, I was quality control with the offense, right? Which, which mm-hmm. meant, you know, for, for lack of a better term, I was, you know, I was cutting up film from the, from the games. I was, you know, uh, putting together the, the playbook, getting the, getting the game plan, you know, uh, helping the coaches get the game plan set for the week. I wasn't doing any game planning. I wouldn't have tried. Mine would have been, you know, sweep left, sweep right, middle, right. You know, that's, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, we helping, you know, helping prepare, um, you know, helping the coaches, um, really in any way that, that we can, um, get ready for practice, get ready for the game. Um, and, uh, and, and still, you know, a way to be around and be a, be a part of the program and, and help really in any way you can. So from there, uh, from there, after the debacle mm-hmm. with the, the, the game <laughs> with Mike yeah. Leach, yeah. um, then you popped up in the wonderful world of compliance. How yeah, did you, yeah. did you wind up in compliance? Yeah. Uh, not something I ever, you know, uh, right. It's not, it's not, uh, I think I've, I've, I've said this before, but you know, it's not, it's a, every, every little boy's dream to grow up to be a compliance person. Right. That was, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, my, uh, my senior year, uh, when I was playing, um, I, I ran into an eligibility issue. Um, I will, you know, I'll spare you the, spare you the details, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I was, uh, declared ineligible by the NCAA, um, right before our bowl game. And, you know, for me, I knew, I, you know, I knew I was not an NFL, you know, I was not going to be an NFL player. Um, so I knew that this, the bowl game, um, you know, we're scheduled to play Arkansas in the, in the Music City Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that was my last time to put on the pads. I knew that was that last time that I could, 
that I can hit somebody without going to jail. Right. And so, um, and so when I, you know, when I learned that I, you know, that I was declared ineligible, I was, I mean, I was devastated and luckily, um, we had, we had an amazing compliance staff here at Minnesota, a guy by the name of Frank Kara, um, who, um, you know, who, you know, unfortunately is, you know, uh, passed on, uh, untimely, um, uh, you know, passed away, I believe it was back in 2007 or eight, but, um, but he did, you know, he did a, an unbelievable job helping me through the NCAA reinstatement process. And ultimately I got, you know, I, I was reinstated by the NCAA on appeal, went through the appeals committee and, and was reinstated. And, and, and on Christmas Eve, uh, found out um, I was going to be allowed to play in the bowl game. And that was, that was a, a really a, a gift, um, a, a tremendous gift. So um, when I, when I was done coaching and um and I was looking at, you know, what is it that I want to do? I got, you know, I got my undergrad in history. I'm not going to be a history teacher. I got a master's degree in sports management. What do you know, looking around at what I wanted to do? Um, you know, I, I, I have, I've grown up in college athletics. Um, you know, since the time, you know, my dad has, uh, my dad had worked in college athletics from the time that, uh, you know, from really the day I was born. And, and I'm, I, I was always a part of college athletics. And so, you know, as I was looking at, at, at different jobs, um, you know, I saw an, an opportunity uh, to actually to, to work at the NCAA. Um, and it was an opportunity to actually work on the staff um, that, that handles um, reinstatement cases, which is, you know, anytime a student athlete is ineligible, like I was, um, they, they get a waiver, um, they have to review it and they get to make decisions. And when I was, you know, looking at what, what makes sense for me, um, you know, even though that had happened, you know, my, my reinstatement case had happened, you know, five, six years before that, um, that kind of impact and the care, um, you know, that, that, that Frank, uh, Frank took with me through the process stuck with me. So, um, so I said, yeah, I'll give this a shot. Right. Like it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it takes us. And, um, ended up spending six years at the NCAA. Um, you know, frankly, I, I enjoyed my time there, you know, working on big issues and, and having an opportunity that to help student athletes through, you know, and schools through the reinstatement process. Um, and you know, it was a, it, it was a good fit. Uh, so can you explain to uh, our audience mm-hmm. what a compliance officer is and does in the in an athletic department? Yeah, so our office and, and we've got um, you know it's not 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 just me I'm the I'm, I'm the director of compliance so mm-hmm. you know so ultimately um, you know it, uh, uh, it it rests with me but um, but we've got a we've got really a great staff of individuals who are, um, our role is to make sure that as an institution, our staff and student athletes are following NCAA rules. And there's, there's a lot to that. Um, because it's, you know, uh, NCAA rules are, uh, trying to, trying to legislate human interaction, 
and trying to legislate morality in some cases. And those are two really hard things to, to try and make rules about. Um, and so really our, you know, our role as a, as a staff is to make sure that our coaches, our student athletes, our administrators, you know, um, everyone um, has the information that they need about NCAA rules. And they, they have a resource to go to when they have questions about NCAA rules. Um, and, you know, then, then we're really kind of the interface with the NCAA and the Big Ten Conference um, for our, our coaches, staff, student athletes. And when you say not only athletes, not only mm -hmm. coaches, but staff, mm -hmm. believe mm -hmm. me, ladies and gentlemen, I spent many days in Jeremiah's yeah. office or on yeah. his phone or sending him an email about yeah. some of this. Some of it was quite silly, but some of it, you know, it's like, okay, I need to ask this before. Yep. Because I held a position where a lot of things came into play and I needed to know for sure or sometimes yep. get the heat off my back too <laughs> um, at the yeah. time get the heat off my back and say, yeah. or understand if we could do it, you know, yeah. what are the parameters? And if we can't do it, be able yeah. to understand so I can um, explain it to whoever the person who probably going to be upset with my no at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one, one of, uh, you know, what, one of the things that I really enjoy about compliance is that we, there's really no other, department within athletics that gets to work with every single team, every single department, uh, top to bottom, mm -hmm. right? It's, you know, you, um, as a marketing staff, like you maybe are only working with, you know, sports X, Y, and Z, but the marketing staff's not, you know, never, you know, not going over to the, um, you know, equipment room and making sure that, you know, uh, understanding what's going on there and that, you know, the creative staff that's, that's making our graphics isn't, isn't, uh, you know, going to the nutrition staff to make sure that they, you know, that they're doing something, but, but that's compliance is everybody's job, um, at, at an institution, everybody's responsible for being compliant. So we really, we have that amazing opportunity to, uh, you know, understand how all of these different departments work and what questions they have and, and get a chance to meet and interact with them. And then, um, and then also serve as a resource for our student athletes. So what year, as I call you, did you mm -hmm. become the chief uh, compliance officer? <laughs> um, yes. I, so I, I took over uh, I, I, uh, after six years at the NCAA, I, I came back in 2013 um, and I worked under um, JT Bruett, who was the director of compliance at the time. He's now the, um, the head of the, the Lindahl Academic Center um, and worked under him for two years. So 2015, um, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, 2015 is when I took over uh, as, as the, the head of compliance here, director of compliance. And your time spent in the NCAA and also under Frank and JT, I take it that you felt that you were ready at that point? Yeah, you know, I, I, I never got an opportunity to work with Frank, unfortunately, but um, but certainly, you know, between, you know, my, my time at the NCAA and, and having those resources and then, um, you know, and then also my time under JT, you know, he, he really helped me learn, um, 
you know, working at the NCA and working at an institution are, are very, very different. <laughs> um, you know, at, at the NCA, when you say, um, you know, when you say this is the answer, well, that's the answer. Right. Um, and, and when you're working at an institution and you tell a coach, hey, coach, this is the answer, um, you know, you might get, are you sure that's the answer? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it definitely, it requires a different, uh, a different skill set and a different, uh, you know, a, a different, uh, uh, you know, uh, way to, way to have some, to have interpersonal relationships with coaches. So, um, so I learned, learned that from JT. Yeah. I can't tell you how many countless <laughs> times I would get a response from you guys in writing uh, and yeah. I would forward it on and they would still come down and say, can we, yeah. it's like, no, sure. there, yeah. there is no, can we, there's no, yeah. this isn't me making the call. This is, uh, this is what is what. So, yeah. So the burning question that everybody wants to know about uh-huh. these days is, yeah. is the part of the NCAA handbook about equipment still as thick, <laughs> as, <laughs> still as, thick as it used to be? Uh, well, they, they, they've, de- they've deregulated a number of things. Uh, apparel, uh, apparel is definitely one of those. Right. Uh, student athlete. You know, things going to student athletes, that's, that's changed a lot, right? I'm, you were around in the days when, you know, they, the, the rule was down to how specific, like, you're allowed to have one polo for travel. And right. One, you know, um, uh, and those are, those, are, those are largely gone. Um, so, you know, thankfully, the, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of things have, uh, have decreased a lot, although I will say, the logo and uh, manufacturer's label yeah. is still two inches square. So okay. that's uh, we're still we're still making sure that the that swoosh isn't too big, or um, you know we don't have too many laundry labels on there, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that that remains. All right, I was joking about the, the handbook because <laughs> it's there, man. Yeah, you, know, you ask the question, I tell you. Right. No, the the, the big question. There is two big questions in college sports these days, mm-hmm. and I hear people in the media who who are very uneducated by it mm-hmm. pontificate on it without any knowledge, which just drives me nuts because I have more knowledge than they have, and I don't have that much. And, or, or they just see it as more roadblocks to, you know, to chaos is what they want, sure. which is what they want, because then sure. they they think they have uh, untold stories to write in that point. But could sure. you explain to everybody what uh, NIL is and um, yeah. why is it such a hot topic? Yeah, so, so name, image, and likeness, um, you know, really kind of for the – for the history of the NCAA, um, there has been a restriction on student athletes using their name, their image, appearance, or likeness to be paid um, in any capacity, right? So that means, you know, as, as I used to explain it to student athletes, you know, it means you can go get a job at McDonald's selling hamburgers, but they can't pay you to stand out front and, and, uh, you know, 
say, hey, I'm, I'm Jeremiah Carter, student athlete at University of Minnesota. Come, come buy hamburgers from McDonald's, right? right? So that, you know, through, you could do a whole separate podcast of how the NCA ended up where they are now with, with right. NIL, but, um, you know, bottom line, you know, as of, as of July 1st, 2021, um, that restriction went away. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, and, and I do mean all of a sudden, because we, I think we got, we got guidelines from the NCAA about, I think about a week and a half before the rule change. Um, and, um, you know, all of a sudden it was, um, it was no longer prohibited and student athletes were able to use their name, image and likeness to, um, to, to profit, right. To, to promote commercial entities, to, um, you know, sell, sell jerseys, run camps, do all sorts of things that they were previously prohibited from doing under NCAA rules. Um, now if, if it just was the open market operating by itself, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think that you would have had, uh, you know, many college sport administrators or, or, or the NCA or anybody else having any problem with NIL, um, being, being permitted, um, for, you know, for, for a long time, but, uh, because in, you know, college athletics, we've got this, uh, we've got this, this group of individuals called boosters, um, representatives of athletics interest. Um, it's not just, um, it's not just the open market. There's, there are more, um, kind of pressures there. Um, and, you know, within, um, you know, within a, a, a month or two, um, we started to see, uh, you know, I would say those initial NIL deals that were public were, were legitimate NIL deals. They were, you know, a student athlete signing with a car dealership to promote the car dealership. Right. Um, it was, you know, student athletes being signed by, uh, what was it? I think it was a, a football player that, that signed with Petco, him and his dog, mm-hmm. right. We're, we're spokespeople for Petco, right? Like that, that is those kind of traditional influencer type activities through social media, um, appearing in, in, in commercials, paid advertisements, running their own camps and clinics, really, you know, above, you know, very clear NIL, um, using name, image, and likeness for, um, for employment. Um, but within, you know, within a couple of months, um, and in some places a little earlier than that, um, you know, we saw we saw representatives of, of athletics interests. We saw boosters um, uh, joining in to uh, the NIL process to try and um, try and make sure that student athletes uh, at a given institution were. Um, provided with name, image, and likeness opportunities, um, whether through a business or, or in some other way. Um, and, uh, and everything that we have seen happen really in the last, uh, we're, we're at about 18 uh, months now, 19 months now, um, has really, has really stemmed from that. Um, and, you know, whether it's the, the launch of collectives, the, uh, in, involving it in the recruiting process, you know, it's, it's really been, um, you know, it's really been a, 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 a tug of war, uh, between the, 
institutions, boosters, NCAA governance staff who, who kind of writes and interprets the rules, um, and, and the NCAA enforcement staff who's responsible for enforcing the rules. Um, you know, we've, we've seen kind of a tug of war between those groups to, to uh, change the uh, direction, change what, what name, image, and likeness really is. Okay. I'm going to kind of sidestep or back here for a quick sure. second and ask, sure, yeah. ask the question about uh, name, image, and likeness yeah. a little bit different. How would okay. the former player, uh, Jeremiah Carter, <laughs> would have felt about name, image, and likeness? I mean, the former player, Jeremiah Carter, would have been just like the former player, Jeremiah Carter, would have been any money coming in for me. I'd probably say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, 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 um, I understand, you know, having, again, having been a player, having been a coach, having worked at the NCAA, having now been a, a part of the NCAA membership, right, which ultimately, you know, the NCAA is a, uh, is whatever the schools want it to be. Um, and I definitely did not understand that as a, as a player. Um, I really didn't understand that when I was coaching either. Um, that, you know, ultimately the, the NCAA is, is not, a, not a bunch of people in Indianapolis making decisions. It's a reflection of what the, the membership um, wants to do. And, um, you know, I, likely as a student athlete, when the NIL rules passed, I would have said about time. Um, but frankly, as a, as a compliance person, when the NILs rule passed, I said about time. Um, okay. so, um, you know, so it's, it's, um, we, we haven't necessarily done a, a, a you know, a great job of, of rolling it out. Uh, and it took a little bit too long, um, for the membership to get there. Um, but I think, the messiness, um, to put it, you know, uh, clunkiness, to put it politely, that you've seen over the last 18 months um, is exactly why the membership was so hesitant to adopt name, image, and likeness in the first place. And, and ultimately, really, it took the, the, the state, you know, legal systems to, um, to, to give the membership a, a shove and, and get, you know, get the NCA into uh, into a place where they're allowing uh, name, image, and likeness. So, um, you know, if, if, um, you know, it's possible that if, if the NCA would have rolled it out 10 years ago, um, it would have looked very different, um, would have been rolled out in a smoother way, but, um, but we just weren't there as a, as a, as a membership. Um, and so we ended up in a, in a spot where, you know, where we find ourselves today, which is, uh, you know, it's a bit clunky. Uh, also, how would have assistant coach <laughs> um, Carter would have felt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have. Uh, I would have. Uh, <laughs> uh, assistant coach Carter probably would have had a different opinion than than <laughs> compliance person Carter. So that's. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, I, I, you know, I say it, I say it all the time. Uh, college coach has to be one of the hardest jobs, um, in athletics. Um, you know, not only are you, 
Um, not only are you responsible for uh, teaching the game, right, which is that 5% that I was talking about, but you're also responsible for, um, you know, getting talented players and you're also responsible for keeping talented players and you're also responsible for making sure that 18 to 22 year olds don't do the stuff that normal 18 to 22 year olds do in college because they're held to a higher standard right and you have to make sure that you're graduating um you know student athletes because that's the commitment that we make to them and while they they have more resources now as coaches than than certainly than we had in our time they also have more responsibilities and more expectations and um it's a really hard job and name image and likeness has not helped that in any way uh make that easier so if if i'm correct the court mm-hmm. case Ob- uh o'bannon versus ncaa mm-hmm. is the court case that basically started all of this um started it yeah i mean i'll i'll, I'll give you that that it, that it started it but there's there are kind of a series of um of actions that have happened since then um that really if if the o'bannon court case which you know for for folks that maybe weren't tracking on it was a a, a former uh, ucla men's basketball player sued the ncaa and um, EA Sports for producing a, a video game that, while it didn't have uh, names, um, it had uh, numbers, colors, and the height and weight even matched, right? So, you know, essentially um, sued the NCAA for, for profiting off the use of a likeness of a student athlete without compensating them. Now, the original goal there was to not only be compensated for that, but also to allow student athletes to use their name, image, and likeness to, to, to profit. While, you know, in that case, the, the, uh, the NCAA did not prevail, uh, O'Bannon, the, 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 you know, class action, you know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a complete victory, um, right. because it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't throw the, the floodgates open for, for name, image, and likeness. Um, really, you know, the, the, the next kind of domino to fall was that the state of California, um, passed a, passed a, a, a bill, um, that was called the, uh, uh, fair pay for fair pay to play act, which actually prohibited pay for play, but it was called the fair pay for play act. And that was, that was actually, um, passed back in, I believe it was 2020, um, and would have required, um, essentially it said, uh, beginning with, I think it was July 1, it was either 2023 or 2024, um, it basically said schools in the state of California um, are not allowed to enforce any rules that prevent student athletes from using their name and mission likeness. And that was out there, just California on its own for for a couple of months. Um, And then a series of things happened. Um, One, the Alston court case, which um, also that went actually through the same court system in California, the same appellate court um, uh, in in California. Um, While it didn't 
allow for uh, direct payments to student athletes by institutions, um, it, it worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And ultimately, some of the decisions, some of the concurring decisions at the Supreme Court level, you know, essentially signaled, uh, hey, NCAA, you don't, you don't get, anti you, you don't have an antitrust exemption. You can't just do whatever you want to with your rules um, without there being some oversight. So that kind of signaled to the NCAA um, that, hey, we might not be able to, to just, just enforce these rules anymore. So then the next thing that happened was, you know, in quick succession, a number of states, most notably Florida, passed laws that were very similar to California's that basically said, you know, if you're a school in the state of Florida, you can't, you can't prevent a, a collegiate student athlete from using their name, image, and likeness. But what Florida did, and, and why I said notably Florida, is they put the effective date as July 1, 2021. So they put the the same effective date as that, you know, in the year that it was passed. And then in, in succession, you had a number of schools, uh, sorry, a number of states doing the same thing. So at that point, you know, the NCAA was basically left with, okay, we either have to sue the states to prevent them from enforcing right. this, th their laws, or we're going to have to relent um, on name, image, and likeness. And ultimately, that's, that's where we ended up. Well, the, the other thing with those state laws was it was almost like when you went from one state to another, yeah. they were one up in each other. Yeah, with yeah, they were. with the yeah. thought of entice. This is going to entice recruiting yeah. by yeah. you know making it <laughs> making it better for our schools when yeah. it came to this. But yeah. the, the problem with that is the biggest misnomer are the two biggest misnomers for name, in, image, and likeness are, and I'll let you say it, but I, mm -hmm. I think you know what they are. Oh, well, I know you know what they are, but could you tell us what they are? Well, okay. Well, there are a lot of misnomers, so you have to narrow that one down for me a little bit, man. Uh, that the, could take up the rest of our time. <laughs> well, the, the one that schools are paying them, yeah. and yeah. schools are using it as a recruiting inducement. Those yeah. are the two well, biggest ones. Got, got it. Well, um, you know, you, you, you are, you're exactly correct, right, that the NCA rules are, are very, very clear that, that the institution, the university, is not allowed to compensate a student athlete for their name, image, and likeness. That's very clear, and I would say that's one that's not really been uh, much of a point of contention within the membership. Now, the NCA guidelines have been very, very clear from the beginning that you are not allowed to use name, image, and likeness in the recruiting space. It's considered a, an, an offer or inducement. So, um, you know, the NCA rules say very clearly um, that, that you can't, you know, you can't make an offer to try and entice a, a, a prospective student athlete, whether it's high school or in the transfer portal um to to enroll at your school with a promise of name image and likeness money having said that if you open any newspaper on any given day you <laughs> yeah. will read about how it's been used in the recruiting process right. and um and in some instances you've had you've had donors who have very vocally and you know really not even not even tried to hide the fact that they are specifically trying to recruit prospective student athletes to the institution of their choice 
um, using name, image, and likeness money. And um, and what we haven't seen is the NTA enforcement staff respond to that with any sort of sanctions. Right. So that is that's really you know a, a, a rule. Um, a rule is only as good as 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 the enforcement of that rule. So um, so that's kind of the a bit of the, the the challenge we find ourselves in as um, as an institution that is um, that's you know committed to following NCAA rules. Um, it really um, it really puts you know puts us at a disadvantage um, compared compared to um, you know. Uh, I would say peer institutions who um, who maybe have allowed it to occur in, in you know have, have allowed it to, to uh, operate in the recruiting space. Yeah, that was. People want to think back to about a year, year and a half ago, the battle between uh, Nick Saban and um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jim, Jimbo Jimbo Fisher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ex, yeah, uh, yeah. Texas A and M. Uh, that's basically what the fight was over. It was um, yeah. Saban pointing out that he believed that they were using it openly to recruit mm-hmm. players. So, yeah. uh, and he probably had some inside knowledge when you have a kid who comes back to you and say, "Coach, I'd like to sign with Alabama, but mm-hmm. this is what they're offering me at yeah. Texas A&M." And yeah. he probably heard it over and over again, and, and it, t- it ticked him off. The other thing yeah. about the media is uh, I think they play the old uh, the, the three monkeys, can't see, can't hear, <laughs> yeah. and don't tell. Um, mm-hmm. And this, I stated this earlier. Some of it's out of ignorance because they won't take the time to, to really, you know, I hear people talk about NIL and they go, I really don't know. Then spend some time and find out. Don't sit there and badmouth something you know nothing about or, or speak on it with, you know, anything about that's what it drives me insane. Um, What are collectives? So, you know, a collective is, um, is really a, 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 an outside organization, outside group. It could be a organized as a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit. It could be organized as a as an LLC, as a business. And the collectives have um, organized themselves around um, essentially pooling resources to ensure that student athletes at a given school um, have. Um, you know, either legitimate or, or, or in, in some cases, um, you know, manufactured or created uh, name, image, and likeness opportunities um, that, that they can receive payment for. And collectives are not started by schools or are they started by schools? So, uh, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. I, so, um, the, the NC, so NCA guidelines limit um, how much involvement an institution can have um, with a you know with either 
um, kind of directing fundraising. Um, you know, we can't we can't work to direct fundraising to a specific student athlete, a specific um, team, um, but we can assist in fundraising. Um, you know, it, uh, I'll say this. Um, it, it's very clear that institutions need a collective, especially at, at the Power Five, the autonomy level, the five biggest conferences, 65, soon to be 68 biggest schools, um, you know, in, in a wide variety of sports. Um, you know, if, if student athletes don't have access to name, image, and likeness opportunities at the institution that they're enrolled in, um, you know, not all student athletes, but some student athletes will choose to transfer or choose to not enroll at an institution because there are no NIL opportunities there. And if you don't have businesses that are stepping forward and, and creating those NIL opportunities, um, a collective is an opportunity for um, donors or you know a combination of donors and businesses um, in, in a local community to um, make sure that there are name, image, and likeness opportunities um, uh, you know, within a, within a program or a sport. So I just find it interesting that, that cause that's almost, that's gotta be on the borderline of, <laughs> of, of crossing the rule. But, um, how does collectives then figure out about who's the hot recruit? <laughs> or well, is that, yeah, or is that an yeah. issue? Well, so that's an issue, right? So, um, so in, uh, I want to say it was March or April of last year. So we're coming up on a year now. Um, you know, I think there's, there's really kind of so far been a couple of different phases of NIL. Um, you know, really that first phase was just kind of the, the legitimate NIL deals out there. Right. And, and, and I, I use the term legitimate, but I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, more like the, tr the traditional, Right. Um, understanding of name, image, and likeness, um, and then you you had the the collective launch, and really kind of fueled by that that first open um, transfer and signing period for football back in the you know December January 2021-22, um, you saw football uh, collectives, uh, you know football specific collectives form, and um, and you saw them really operating in that recruiting space. And, um, and then in, um, you know, uh, you know, March, April of, of last year, um, the NCAA came out with new guidance specific to collective specific to third party name, image and likeness entities, as they call them. And they essentially said, um, hey, we've seen this before. They're called boosters. This is a booster organization. And as such, you have to treat it as a booster organization, which means they can't be involved in the recruiting process. Um, they can work with current student athletes, um, but they can't. They can't recruit. Um, and those are, you know, those are clear guidelines. Um, now, what I think happened on the heels of that was, you. So up until that point, March, April, you know, you go back and look at some of the articles. You know, you see, you see donors very publicly associated with institutions, very publicly talking about, um, 
you know, this recruiter, that recruit and how they, they got them signed, right? In one high profile case, you saw a, a donor, a donor was the one to announce the fact that a transfer student athlete was choosing their school. And it was tied to um, the agreement that that boosters company made with that, with that transfer prospect. Um, and so there you have, you know, what is, what's really clearly involvement in the recruiting process. Um, but, you know, the, the, that guidance came out from the NCAA that said, hey, this is a booster organization and as such they can't communicate with prospects um, until they're kind of either signed with the institution or enrolled with the institution. Um, and you saw, uh, you saw it go quiet for a little while. You didn't have the donors talking about, you know, you know, breaking the news that they right. So now did that did that actually stop those conversations from happening or did it just send those conversations, you know, underground? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, it's um, you know, that that continues to be. Um, you know, I would say probably the 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 most hotly uh, debated issue um, within NIL is the NCAA says you can't use it in the recruiting process. It's clearly being used in the recruiting process. Is the NCAA going to do anything to stop right. it from being used in the recruiting process? And those are, th those are all answers that, um, you know, we have to make a decision at Minnesota um, about what's best for us to do as an institution. Mm -hmm. um, lots, lots and lots of factors go into that. Um, but, you know, we have to, we have to decide, you know, what's the, you know, what's the risk in doing something? What's the risk in not doing something? What are we willing to do? Um, and every institution needs to make that decision and, and um, take on, choose to take on that risk or not take on that risk. Um, but, I, you know, it's not, I don't think it's as, um, most people talk about what a gigantic gray area this all is and all that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's actually, especially on the recruiting front, I don't think it's all that gray. No, it's pretty. It's it's based on the the NCA guidance. It's pretty clear. Where it gets gray is when you watch, you know, is when you see what's what's being publicly reported um, uh, up up until you know up until today, right? Like these things are still these things are still happening. So that's that's really the only thing that that introduces uh, ambiguity into it. And when you talk about what the University of Minnesota decides. Not only are you talking mm -hmm. about yourself and the athletic director, you're also talking about the general counsel, maybe even the Board of Regents and the president. Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately our role is to make sure we're following NCAA rules. And the reason why we do that is, is we are tasked with, um, you know, we're, we're tasked, tasked with, protecting the integrity um, of the University of Minnesota, right? Um, you know, NCAA, NCAA rules will tell you that um, an athletic department is ultimately under the control of the president or chancellor of an institution. And they are ultimately responsible for the actions that we take. So if we are going to choose to, um, you know, uh, I, as the director of compliance, um, you know, I will do, I always, 
we will all are, always do our best to clearly lay out and explain where the NCAA rules are, where the guidelines are, um, you know, uh, really where where the tree limb is, but how far out on that tree limb we go um, isn't isn't our call. Um, that that uh, that's higher up the food chain. Uh, final question about uh, NIL. Um, it's not only just for football. It's not only or football and men's basketball. Uh, it's for all the sports. And, you know, you see like Paige Beckers at, at um, UConn has a million-dollar NIL deal between two companies. And there's a young gymnast. I believe she's at LSU. That, LSU, yeah. yeah. That has top, a, top earner. Right. Top earner last year, yeah. <laughs> So I want people to understand that not only young men and it, and and if you look really look at it, because everybody thinks that every football player is, has an NIL deal, and like mm-hmm. you stated earlier, you probably wouldn't have gotten a dime as an officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, well, yeah, maybe a state place. Well, uh, yeah. Now I, you know, what's 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 been really what's been really fascinating is if you, if you're just to strip it down and take out the collective piece and take out the donor involvement, you take out all of that other stuff that, that has become, that has become all of the conversation, um, frankly, um, of the, you know, as of, as of the last 12 months, um, the market for name, image, and likeness, the market for influencers, the market for, um, you know, uh, for advertisers, they only care about what sport you play and how good you are at that sport when you're at the, you know, let's call it the transcendent level, right? Mm-hmm. When you're at the level where you are nationally, you're, you are so uh, famous uh, because of, of your actions on, on the field, on the court, on the mat, um, you know, you're so famous that people nationally or, or locally will know you that, you know, will know you, right? Otherwise you don't have that value, but the social media aspect of it and the, the influencer aspect of it, um, we've seen that they don't, they don't care what sport you play. They don't care whether or not you're the starter or you're, you're third string on the bench. Um, they care how many followers you have on social media. They care how far that reach goes and they care what group pays attention to you. So, you know, when we've, when we, you know, went back and looked at it and, and, you know, our highest, uh, you know, student athlete, uh, with, with the most, um, you know, separate deals, um, what wasn't in a major sport. Right now, the highest dollar value, you know, the highest dollar value was was, you know, some of the some of the folks you might maybe think they are. But like, but when it comes to the most deals, advertisers are looking at who who connects me to the audience that I want to connect to. And in and in a lot of cases, female student athletes and student athletes in Olympic sports have gigantic followings. Um, they, they're really social media savvy. They connect with a group that advertisers desperately want to reach. 
Um, and so they are getting those, they are getting those deals. Um, you know, the, um, you know, page, page Beckers isn't, you know, isn't at over a million dollars in endorsement deals, um, because of a collective, um, you know, she's at, she's at that amount because, you know, she's a transcendent player, right. And Gatorade wants to capitalize on that. Um, and so, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. It's not, it is not just football basketball. Like it, it, it absolutely is not. It has to do with the individual student athletes and what their, you know, what their reach is. Um, and so, um, you know, all of the, the, the other stuff, um, has, has kind of skewed the conversation a little bit, but, um, but the fundamentals are, are, are really still there. And let me go down this road really fast. Mm-hmm. I started a glove repair business mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, say a softball player whose uh, glove I've repaired, um, say that I want to do an NIL deal. I want to give her 50 bucks because mm-hmm. believe me, that's about my limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, so we're, we're, so how does the wheel started to do i uh call you does she connect with you do i connect with her how yeah yeah so um so the uh we have and this is permitted under ncaa rules um so we we set up something called the the minnesota nil marketplace um you can actually you can actually find it through um gophersports.com slash nil um it's it's the, the first link when you go through there or you can just do a Google search for Minnesota NIL marketplace. Um, and there, um, student athletes who, who choose to opt in, um, to, to place their profile on, um, on, on the marketplace, um, are able to, um, see deals that individuals, businesses are able to go in and propose deals, um, amount duration, you know, um, location type, all those things. And, um, and then student athletes, if, if, again, if they've put themselves on that platform are able to go in and, um, go in and take a look and, and see, you know, yes, I want to do this deal. No, I don't. And, um, if they accept it, um, they can, they can do payment through there, you know, receive payment through there, you know, you can, uh, businesses can verify that student athletes have, have completed the work before the payment happens. They have to actually, uh, upload proof of work, um, uh, through the through through the marketplace so that the business can see that it's completed um, and and then the money uh, from the business flows to the student athlete um, but the the university um, uh, aside from providing the platform um, we're not in we're not involved in any capacity we're not um, you know we're not arranging for the deals we're not ensuring that the deals happen we're not providing the payment. We're not taking any of the payments. We're not taking any of the money, um, that, that comes in through there. Um, and so that, you know, the Minnesota NIL marketplace is how, uh, a fan business, you know, whatever it may be, can connect with a student athlete directly and, and propose a deal. And people have to understand schools are kind of allowing these opportunities, but they, on the other hand, can be losing, uh, donation dollars themselves on the other side because some donors have to make that decision on do I do an NIL deal or do I just give it to the athletic department? 
Yeah, and that, you know, the other thing I, I would say that we probably run into, um, you know, somewhat often, our student athletes have been really good about understanding this, but, you know, just like, you know, I, as an employee of the University of Minnesota, you know, I can, I'm, you know, I'm wearing a polo right now with the black M on it, right. um, and I can wear that to work all I want to, but I can't wear that in a commercial if I'm getting paid for, right. for a commercial, because that, that's a, that's a, it's trademarked, right? Mm -hmm. So student athletes, just because they're student athletes does not give them, you know, under university rules and, and NCA rules, frankly, that, you know, you don't just, uh, because you are um, securing the services as a business, securing the services of a student athlete, that doesn't mean that you're also um, securing the rights to use a, a university's marks and logos. Um, so, you know, that's been uh, certainly been a, a, a topic of education for us with our student athletes and then, you know, also with, with businesses. With that, that really sums everything up and I really appreciate it. Very mm -hmm. quickly, can you explain, because yeah. <laughs> this yeah. in a lot of people's heads, they yeah. hear the word transfer portal and they think it's a magical, uh, yeah. mythical place that <laughs> athletes go and stand in line uh, and whatnot. Yeah. And I remember the first day I heard it, I was walking into uh, late, Mm -hmm. but walking into a soccer team meeting and a member mm -hmm. of your staff was explaining mm -hmm. to the athletes, the transfer portal it was the first time yeah. that it was being explained. And, and I walked in and I see all of their mouths agape and him yeah. speaking. And I was like, yeah. what did I just miss? And I had to follow <laughs> up with the coach at the time to find yeah. out what was going on. But can you tell yeah. them what transfer portal is? Yeah, so so um, in order to to once a student athlete is enrolled at a, at a university, um, there's a an NCAA rule that they cannot they cannot be recruited by or have recruiting conversations with another institution unless you know essentially there it's it's publicly declared that they are talking about transferring and. And you can't just, you know, you have to, uh, there's, there's some other pieces tied to it where, you know, it, it potentially impacts financial aid and, and, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're making a decision to, to really to quit the team and, and, uh, and, and try and transfer to another school. So um, the, the old rule there was that a student athlete needed to get permission to transfer permission. It was called permission to contact. So they would have to actually, Hey, I'm a University of Minnesota student, and I'm interested in, in talking to other coaches about transferring. You actually had to go and get permission, written permission, to be able to do that. And once you did, then you could send that to coaches at other schools, and then they could talk to you. Well, uh, about, I think we're maybe four years, 2019. Um, we're, uh, yeah, almost four years into um, the NCA legislative change, where instead of having a um, permission to contact and you know folks in our offices were were zipping emails back and forth with pdfs of letters mm -hmm. you know between schools um that went away and the nca introduced a centralized database of uh, uh available transfers so the permission part of it went away um but the the public decor uh, declaration um, that, hey, I'm, I'm looking at other schools, 
um, and that being kind of the first opportunity for a, a student athlete under, you know, permissibly under NCAA rules to talk to another school. Um, that that is, uh, you know, that is the portal for better or worse. It's really just a, a database of names, uh, names and information. But that's that's what kind of officially declares uh, to the the you know NCA world that uh, you know as a student athlete, I'm looking to transfer. And and with that portal, two mm-hmm. two other things have happened. Coaches mm-hmm. have to basically re-recruit. <laughs> their, their yeah. team every year to stay. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing is now coaches have another pool of people yeah. to recruit to add to their team. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, it, it, this has been, it's been really tricky um, to make there, there've been, uh, uh, you know, as you mentioned, our, our friends in the media, right. I've made a lot of pronouncements about, um, the transfer portal is the cause of, uh, you know, cause of chaos and cause of, you know, oh, there's nobody's loyal to school anymore. Look at all the, look at the numbers. They love posting the numbers, mm-hmm. right? The challenge with that is there's one event that is directly tied to the availability, the number of transfers available that happened within the first year of it that we are we're never going to be able to unwind and understand what the impact would have been without it and that is um uh, that that that's covid mm-hmm. and we we you know in in 2020 so the the really that spring season of 2020 and then the entire 20 uh 21 um you know uh, season um you had uh the ncaa passed a blanket waiver for every student athlete that participated and gave them an extra year of eligibility. Um, well, in division one, and I think, I I think I have this number correct. I think there's about 118,000 student athletes at the division one level between the, the kind of FBS, FCS, you know, not non-football, not scholarship, you know, about 118,000. So in, in, one foul swoop, the NCAA injected 118,000 years of extra eligibility oh, into, into, into a system right. that had, you know, that had a, you start, you have five years and you leave. And there's not, there were maybe one offs here and there, but all of a sudden they said, everybody who's a current student athlete gets an extra season. And so, when you look at the numbers in the transfer portal, there's never any context added to that. Like, hey, this number of those student athletes that went in have already used four seasons of competition. So, but for that COVID year, they wouldn't be in the transfer portal because they would have exhausted eligibility. And, you know, maybe that school had already, before the COVID extra year of eligibility hit, had already, you know, committed to you know, bring in a student athlete to replace them, right? With, from out of high school. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there was a lot of hand wringing and, and, you know, concern and fretting over the number of student athletes going into the transfer portal during 21, during 20 and, and last year as well. And a lot of those kids are, are just using their extra year 
um, and going in and seeing what's available, right? I've graduated. I spent four years or five years at this school. Um, I, maybe my spot on the team is is not, you know, has been has been recruited because they were expecting me to be gone without that COVID year. Um, so I'm just going to see, you know, see if I can keep playing my sport, right? Believe me, if I had an extra year, I would have, you know, I would have taken every bit of it. So without being able to subtract that, right, and it's going to take, you know, those those kids that came in that first year are now starting to be juniors and seniors. So it's still going to take another probably two years to filter that that 118,000 right. years out of the system. But, you know, we'll never know what the, what, you know, what impact, how it changed the transfer portal numbers from what it would have been um, without that. So it's, it's, it's really a tricky conversation. And this came about because of three sports, football, basketball, and baseball? Well, so, so the previous rule allowed um, student athletes in really in any sport um, to, to have the one-time transfer exception where they could, where they could transfer one time and be immediately eligible. The sports that were not allowed to take advantage of that were football, men's and women's basketball, men's ice hockey, and baseball. So those in those sports, you could not, the rule was you had to sit out a year if you transferred. And when the NCAA, at the same time as launching the transfer portal, um, they deregulated uh, or, or removed the rule that required student athletes in those sports to sit out a year. So all of a sudden they only had, you know, uh, you know, they were able to transfer and be immediately eligible um, like the rest of the sports. And, you know, did that have an impact on the transfer portal numbers? Absolutely. There's no doubt. But again, that came into place the same exact year when the first of the, of the COVID extra years of eligibility came into place as well. So, what would the impact have been without all those extra years? Don't know. Um, but, you know, the number would have been lower because there would have been, you know, 118,000 less years of, of, <laughs> of extra eligibility. So, um, so that, you know, but that is the, the, that was the root, that rule change was the root of the, the, uh, the transfer portal. Right. Well, I'll never forget when that came about. It was, mm -hmm. it was just in the spring they yep. had Barry Alvarez, who's, he was the AD at Wisconsin at the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> the response was, the tank is all his athletes, you're not getting a COVID year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that, that's, uh, they have, they have backtracked on that quickly. Cause I promise you they're getting years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how many times can a kid transfer? Cause there's, there's been quarterbacks who've, you know, they're at their sure. sixth school. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the, the base rule is you get one. Um, and, and you can be immediately eligible if you get one. But, um, you know, I, I, there are very few NCA rules that uh, don't have exceptions built into them. Um, and there are very few NCA rules that you can't ask a waiver for. Um, so you can always ask for a waiver if you don't meet the base rule. Um, but there's also, you know, there are also a number of, um, you know, there, there have been a number of exceptions um, that are built into the rule that give 
some additional leeway. Um, you know, for instance, if you're a, um, if you're a non-scholarship student, if you're a walk-on, um, you know, you you can transfer as many times as you want to and be immediately eligible. Which you know, if you're paying your own way at the Division One level, you should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're a, you know, student student that's playing the bill, and if you want to pay the bill at a different school, you should be able to go and play. Um, so, you know, there, there, are, there, there are some exceptions like that built in, um, you know, there are some, some waivers that still exist for graduate students. So once you've completed your undergrad program, if the school that you're attending does not have the graduate degree program that you are interested in pursuing, you can transfer and be immediately eligible, even if you've transferred before, um, uh, you know, there, kind of a, a, a few other waivers that, that are out there um, that that would allow a, a, a student athlete to, um, to to be able to transfer more than one time and be eligible. Well, this has been very informative for me, so I mm -hmm. and I hope it will be informative to others. And you have my mm -hmm. permission, instead of sitting in a long meeting, you can send them to my podcast and just uh, <laughs> sit down and listen, listen to this interview I did with Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me know if you have any follow-up questions. Yeah. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. It, it's yeah. always, uh, you know, great talking to you, JB. Yeah, uh, I miss our yeah, conversations. Appreciate yeah, appreciate you having me on. And, and one more time, can you give me the link on the on the Gopher Sports for uh, possible uh, collective? Yes. Yeah, so um, so the it's gophersports.com slash nil, um, and you know from there you'll see a you'll see a link to um, you'll see a link to the Minnesota nil marketplace, which would which is where you can connect directly with with student athletes. Um, you get you'll see a link to the uh, Dinkytown athletes, which is the um, the collective um, associated with the University of Minnesota. Um, you know, probably a, a familiar name for you that the co-founder is uh, Derek Burns, former football student athlete. <laughs> yeah. um, and then and then Robert Gag, who's a, a you know, supporter of the university. Um, and um, and then there's also links to uh, student athlete, you know, different student athlete apparel um, who, you know, uh, officially licensed merchandise that um, that student athletes have collaborated with uh, with individuals to bring to uh, bring to market. Um, all, all can be found at gophersports.com slash NIL. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I want to let get you back to your job. And, um, <laughs> Appreciate it, <man>. yeah. <laughs> this has been uh, Jeremiah Corder, Director of Compliance at the University of Minnesota Athletics, or as I call him, call him the Chief of Compliance, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. 
The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. I really enjoyed that interview with Jeremiah Carter. Like I said, I've known him since, well, as he corrected me, I thought it was 18, 17-year-old offensive lineman at the University of Minnesota. But watch his uh, growth over the years and become the person that he is, the uh, compli- not only chief compliance officer or director of compliance, but also a father and husband and all those wonderful things. Thank you for continuing to listen. Tell a friend, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and other outlets that you can find podcasts on. And like I stated just a few seconds ago, the most key thing is please continue to listen. And patron my uh, sponsor, Mike Bryant, and Bradshaw and Brian, if you have the need. And until next time, thank you for listening to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name, and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. I am Negro, Black, African American, Black, Black, Black. Django, JB. Damn, Dolomite. Great card in heaven, you know. Our great Negro sex machine.